after Jesus went to heaven. And we've come today to um, the section on Paul in Jerusalem. So let me pray for us now before we look further at this passage together. Heavenly Father, um, we pray today that your word would do its work in our hearts and lives. Uh, we do not come to this passage just trusting in our own mental faculties, in our own cleverness to understand or to hear and discern what you're saying to us. Uh, we know that we need the help of you and your spirit. So please, we pray, help me to be clear and help us all to hear you speaking to us personally so that we are blessed and encouraged uh, through this passage and hear what you would say to each of us individually uh, moving forward uh, in, as people who trust in Jesus. Amen. Well, on a hot, humid summer's day, a church decided to take the opportunity to reach out to their local community. Uh, they lived in a poor, deprived inner city area, which had a very high proportion of immigrants from Africa. So what they did is they... Uh, got these eskies, uh, they packed them full of ice and with bottled water and with soft drinks to give out free of charge. Uh, and then one of the team recounted what happened next. I'm going to quote him. Listen to this. Eager to start conversations with residents about faith, we set up our refreshment table just a few blocks away from our church. Within minutes, residents began flocking to our makeshift ref refreshment stand. Uh, one older gentleman of African origin was particularly friendly. After reaching into the esky for a beverage, he walked towards me and we shook hands. What brought you all here today, he asked. Uh, sensing the prompting of the Holy Spirit, I began to share about the faith which had inspired our church to visit their community. But as I continued, his friendly demeanor evaporated. This is why I can't stand you stupid people. He stepped forward and gave me a poke in the chest. You don't know anything about your history. Don't you know that Christianity is a white man's religion? You're just regurgitating his racist rhetoric. Well, I listened to his frustrations for several minutes before I pushed his hand away. You're wrong, I said. And indeed, I'd heard of these claims before and had grown accustomed to hostile exchanges. I continued, Christianity started in the Middle East, and the gospel traveled to Egypt and Ethiopia in Africa the same year that Jesus rose from the dead. Frankly, many of the earliest theologians were from Africa. You cannot say that Christianity is a white man's religion. Christianity is often misunderstood and misrepresented. Christians are sometimes unfairly maligned. If we are a Christian, how should we respond? Uh, should we just remain quiet? Or should we engage and mount a defense for the faith? Well, Acts chapters 21 and 22 speak into such questions. As we will see opposition to the gospel and misunderstandings of the gospel has been constant throughout history. Now, what we experience today is not new. And the need for Christians to defend and declare the gospel has been present and pressing in every generation. 
Uh, this closing section of Acts is an encouragement to Christians to play their part in standing up for the Christian faith. Uh, defending the gospel, we know, has never been a comfortable experience. Uh, some of us may feel less uncomfortable than others at the prospect. However, if we are willing to trust God, he can and he will use us to defend and promote the gospel. So, uh, in Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul arrives back in Jerusalem. And it marks the conclusion of his third missionary journey. And it, indeed, is also a turning point in the book of Acts. For, for the remainder of Acts, Paul moves from being a missionary and a pastor to being a prisoner and a defender of the faith. And these final chapters of Acts chart Paul's defense of himself and his gospel during his four-year-long journey, eventually to Rome. Now then, uh, the Greek word often translated in our English Bibles as defense is the Greek word uh, apologia. And it's where we get our word uh, apologetics from. Uh, apologetics means to mount a case in defense of a position or an action. So, in relation to Paul, uh, this word apologia occurs four times hereafter in Acts. And the first is in our passage today. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. This is what he says. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Listen now to my defense. He's going to mount a defense. And the aim of his defense is to acquit both his ministry and his message, his gospel, the good news about Jesus. And in the remaining sections of Acts, we're going to see uh, Paul actually will mount five defenses for the gospel. Uh, today, uh, to the Jewish mob in chapter 22. Uh, next week, uh, if you're here, to the Jewish council. Uh, then to two Roman governors who are called Felix and Festus. And finally, to a king named Agrippa. So five defenses in the remaining sections of Acts. So you see, uh, defense of the Christian faith moves now center stage in the chapters that remain of Acts. Uh, let me give you a brief roadmap as where we're going to go this morning. We're going to see three things. Firstly, the occasion for a defense. Secondly, the eagerness for a defense. And finally, the results of an offense, a defense. So... Firstly, the occasion for a defense. Opportunities to defend and promote the gospel, they arise in many different situations. Uh, some of those situations will be quite non-confrontational and benign, but others will be in the face of volatile and vitriolic op opposition. Now, at the best of times, uh, many of us will be tempted just to remain quiet, but this will certainly be the case in those more confrontational settings. What Paul faced that day uh, was right up the end of confrontational uh, in big red letters. Uh, a serious, uh, what we're going to see is a, a series of factors merged together to create the perfect storm of violent opposition. So firstly, now the first ingredient uh, is this. And it's what we increasingly see also today in our secular, anti-Christian Western society. 
So firstly, uh, a clash of worldviews. Uh, the accusations leveled against Paul, uh, it was all to do with uh, Jewish religion and culture. Look at 28, verse 28 of chapter 21. Men of Israel, help us, uh, cry these Jews uh, who are inciting the crowd. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and our place. You see what their concern is. They're saying, we're under attack. Our religion's under attack. Our culture is under attack. And the presenting questions are very obvious. Uh, what does it mean to be truly Jewish? Uh, what is the purpose of our temple and our law? But underlying these questions is another substrata of questions. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus really the fulfillment of the law and the temple? Are those who follow Jesus true descendants of Abraham? In other words, true Jews. Well, Paul's view was that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything promised in the Old Testament. That to trust in him meant that you were a true Jew. But to these Jews... They viewed Jesus and Christianity as a clear and present danger to their culture and their religion. So, there's the first ingredient to this volatile situation, a clash of worldviews. Uh, secondly, add into that mix great personal hatred. Now then, uh, the people who started stirring up the crowd in the temple that day we are told they are Jews from Asia. And we know, of course, from the previous chapters in Acts that Paul faced very vicious opposition from some of the Jews in Asia during his missionary journeys. They hated Paul, and their, murderous, uh, their hatred even morphed into murderous intentions. As we saw in chapter 20, there was even this plot, which was unsuccessful, thankfully, to take Paul's life. And it is evident that some of these anti-Paul Jews have now made their way to Jerusalem. Uh, they've come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to celebrate the Pentecost festival. On, then they go to the temple and there they see Paul. And their blood boils. And their hateful hearts spur them to action. Look what they do, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, uh, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. Uh, a third factor in this perfect storm of opposition is misinformation and slander. I don't know if you notice the great irony, but actually, what is Paul doing at the time? Well, he's actually trying to be sensitive uh, to Jewish sensibilities. Uh, he knows that because he has been the missionary to the Gentiles, uh, he's in danger of being accused of being anti-Jewish. And so now he's doing this seven-day Jewish cleansing ritual out of obedience to the law. So he's actually trying to, to assuage the concerns of the Jews, particularly Jewish Christians, 
that he actually respects and has regard for the Jewish law. And yet now, these Jews slanderously say that he's doing exactly the opposite. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. Poor Paul. He just can't win. You see, these Jews, uh, they're not interested in the truth. They just want his head. Uh, they conveniently brand Paul with the label anti-Jew, anti-temple, anti-law. And therefore, poor guy. He's the victim of misinformation and slander. Uh, finally, the fourth factor in this unholy cocktail is an eagerness to believe the worst. Uh, without any evidence presented, uh, Paul is falsely accused of defiling the temple area. Uh, these Jews from Asia, uh, they've seen Paul with a Greek in the city, and they now see Paul in the temple, and that's sufficient for them. Uh, they can't see the Greek anywhere, but they stir up the crowd with accusations that Paul must have brought this Greek into this sacred area of the temple. And hence, the blue touch paper is lit. Now look at verse 28 as it continues. This is what they say. And besides, he, this Paul, has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Jewish temple, but in the Jewish temple, there was an outer court for the Gentiles and an inner area, an inner court for the Jews. Now, Gentiles were not allowed to enter into that inner area for the Jews. Uh, to do so was considered sacrilegious. It's interesting that archaeologists have discovered uh, actual signs, engravings on stone uh, from the temple. Uh, and they actually say this, and I'll quote, and it says these, there were signs all around the temple saying, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. In other words, that's the wall dividing the area for the Gentiles uh, to the area for the Jews. It continues, anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It's not very welcoming, is it? But there it is. In effect, the message was, trespassers will be shot on sight. And hence, these troublemakers deceptively exploit this whole area for their own dark ends. They say, Jew has defiled the temple. So it's an unholy cocktail. Uh, and this still happens today, doesn't it? Uh, Christianity is misrepresented in the media. Uh, the Bible is misquoted to paint its teachings in a dark light. Uh, what is the hot topic of our generation? Is it not sexuality? And somebody who presents a faithful Christian viewpoint in public is often castigated with the label bigot, or in the case of same-sex marriage, homophobe, or worse. We did see it, of course, in the recent debate on same-sex marriage. So we can see this sort of thing still happening uh, today. And the question is this. How should we, if we're Christians, respond? Uh, should we stay quiet? Uh, should we return hate for hatred? Well, 
Let's see what, how Paul responded. Uh, there were occasions in Paul's ministry when he didn't respond at all. Uh, sometimes he chose not to exercise his rights. Uh, sometimes he elected to remain silent. It seems that he was served, uh, he was guided by what served the gospel best. Now, in this particular instance, he decides he must speak up. He decides uh, this is not a time to remain quiet. Uh, he wants to correct their misunderstandings. He wants to give the gospel the best chance of a fair hearing. Now, the Roman commander initially thinks that Paul is an Egyptian terrorist leader. But Paul soon puts him right on that. Look at verse 39. Uh, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Uh, if he's a citizen of Cilicia, it means actually he is a Roman citizen. So he's saying, I'm not an Egyptian terrorist. You've got it all wrong. I'm a Jew, firstly, but I'm also a Roman citizen. Uh, his concern is not just for the perceptions of the Roman commander. He's also concerned for the misunderstandings of the rioting mob. And so what does he do? He pleads with the Roman commander in verse 39... Please let me speak to the people. Please let me speak to the people. Uh, for the sake of the gospel, he wants to help people understand that he and the gospel, they're not anti-Jewish. And so what does he do? Uh, he tells them the story of his life and the story of God's work in his life. Now it's interesting that when you read through the whole book of Acts, uh, you'll see actually that the story of Paul's conversion uh, is recounted three times. Uh, firstly, it's recounted in chapter 9 in the, work of, in the words of the author Luke. But then uh, it's recounted by Paul himself in his own words here in chapter 22. And later, to King Agrippa we'll see, in chapter 26. Now, each time Paul's story is recounted, the outline is the same. But the emphasis of each testimony is particularly fitted to its context, to who it's been told to. So, uh, where is Paul? Uh, he's in Jerusalem. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews, an angry crowd. Uh, what is their complaint? That he is anti-Jewish, anti-law, anti-temple. So what does he do? He tells the story of his life and what God has done in his life, but it is the J-rated version. It's the version for Jews. He stresses his loyalty to his Jewish origins and the Jewish faith. And yet, if you notice, he does it with great skill and sensitivity. What is he doing? He's actually bending over backwards to assure them that he and his gospel are not anti-Jewish, they're not anti-temple, they're not anti-law. So what does he do? How does he do that? Uh, let me take you through it. It's amazing to watch because it's beautifully done. Firstly... Uh, he addresses them in Aramaic, which is a very good start. Because, of course, Aramaic was the language of the Jews. And that actually quietens them down. Then he briefly tells the story of his upbringing and his conversion, beautifully weaving this Jewish emphasis throughout. Look again at Acts 22, verse 1. He says this, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Well, that's a good start. 
brothers and fathers. He's saying we are brothers together. I'm a Jew, you're a Jew. And he does indeed continue to say exactly that. Verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is, the holy city Jerusalem. And he continues, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. Uh, Gamaliel was one of the greatest uh, rabbis of Paul's day. And he's saying, I actually sat under Gamaliel, this great Jewish teacher. And I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. And he continues, and was just as zealous for God as any of you here today. So you see what he's saying? I'm one of you. And indeed, I'm just as zealous as you. In fact, he goes on to explain, I even killed the followers of this way. I was against Christ, and I was against his people, just like you are now. Of course, as he explains his story, and we know that after Paul's Damascus Road experience, uh, and his con- Christ sends a local Christian believer to Paul in Damascus, the blinded Paul. And again, his Jewish credentials are emphasized. Look at verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me, says Paul. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Saying, this guy, this Christian who came to see me, he was actually also a devout Jew. The two are not incompatible. And then he continues, uh, because even Ananias' message stresses that Paul was commissioned by the God of the Jews. Look at verse 14. Then he said, recounts Paul speaking what Ananias said to him, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You, Paul, will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. It's beautifully pitched, isn't it? It's a work of art. He's saying this, uh, guys, uh, our God, the God of the Jews, uh, he's the one who's given me this message and this job. Uh, Jesus, guys, is not a threat to our Jewish religion. Indeed, he's the fulfillment of all our hopes. Jesus is the promise of all our scriptures. So, could Paul have done more? I don't think so. He did everything possible. He bent over backwards to be sensitive, to reach out to them, to diffuse their concerns, and to win them over. He was a defender of the faith. Defending the faith is an important component of Christian witness. Uh, Christianity needs people to stand up and present its case. Now, uh, some people are particularly specialised and gifted to do this. Uh, They're what we could call um, specialist apologists. Remember the apology? You defend the faith. So, of course, we see uh, in the Christian community there are what we call big hitters. Uh, Those who are particularly gifted in particular areas of expertise, uh, particularly gifted in maybe publicly debating uh, the Christian case. Uh, One example I'll give you, of course, is uh, John Lennox. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, He's an amazing man, Christian man, uh, Oxford uh, Don, mathematician, and philosopher of science. 
And he, of course, has publicly debated with people like the atheist Richard Dawkins. Uh, there he is, in public, debating. Dawkins says Christianity is dangerous, it's subversive. Um, basically, it is something which should be eradicated. And what does John Lennox do? In public, he debates with Richard Dawkins and argues the case. And very powerfully, he does that. So there are specialist apologists, if you like, in the Christian community, and we can learn from them and stand on their shoulders. But they're ordinary, what I'd call, uh, they're also uh, ordinary apologists. In other words, I'm talking about me, and I'm talking about you, if you trust in Jesus. Uh, every Christian can defend the case of Christianity. And indeed, every Christian can grow in our knowledge and skills in doing that. And indeed, we learn from watching the specialist apologists. Uh, I had the privilege of um, knowing somebody who came to faith back in 2012. Um, and uh, his name was Ian. Uh, he became a Christian. And Ian particularly had a... He, he developed a, a quite a, an interest and a taste in uh, apologetics. Uh, just on what basis do, uh, is my faith uh, grounded in reality? How could I sort of know for sure that it's true? And so he became a big fan of another um, quite specialised uh, Christian godly apologist, William Lane Craig. Uh, and he's gone on his website, he's downloaded a lot of his podcasts, and he just feeds himself on these, and he's listening to all these debates. It's incredible to see how this young Christian, he's only been a Christian now six years, but he's already really well tooled up in basis on which Christian faith is solid and reasonable and can be presented as such. So it's not beyond any of us. So finally, uh, we, we've seen the occasion uh, for a defense, uh, the eagerness for a defense. The final thing is we see the result of the defense. What was the result of Paul's defense? Well, as we will see next week, uh, Paul actually makes more headway with the Romans than he does with the Jews. As soon as he mentions to the Jews the G word, the place erupts. Look at verse 21. He's continuing uh, to tell them about what the risen Christ said to, me, said to him. Paul said to the crowd, Then the Paul said to me, uh, Go, uh, that's not the G word, uh, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. <laughs> the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, then they raised their voice and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! Goodness, what a reaction. You see, the Jews had no problem with converting Gentiles to be Jews. Yeah, they were quite happy with uh, proselytizing. But for Gentiles to be able to remain Gentiles and yet be beneficiaries of all God's Old Testament promises, well, that was just too much for these people. And so when you have these four ingredients, uh, clashing worldview, personal hatred, misinformation and slander, and eagerness to believe the worst, it doesn't exactly provide a climate for calm, rational discussion. Paul has been reasonable. He's been rational. But his audience is not. And if they can't win the argument through debate, then to them, death is an acceptable alternative. And as we analyse what Paul said to them that day, it's fair to say he couldn't have been more careful or conciliatory with his words. With great sensitivity, he was reaching out to them. The problem wasn't with Paul, 
It was with the people. So when we think about ourselves today, when we stand up for the faith, uh, we shouldn't be surprised if sometimes we receive rejection. Uh, We may be as careful and sensitive as possible in what we say, and yet that doesn't guarantee a favorable response. But we need to remember the problem is not with us, but with them. So, was Paul wasting his time? If he knew beforehand as to how it would turn out, would he have bothered that day to try and speak to this violent crowd? Well, actually, I'm sure he actually did have a pretty good idea beforehand as to how things were going to turn out. After all, uh, he had plenty of precedent to go by. How had the Jews treated Jesus? They'd violently rejected him. They'd even killed him. How had the Jews treated the Apostle Peter? Well, they had rejected him. The Apostle John rejected him. Stephen, he was the first martyr killed for his Christian faith at the hands of the Jews. So you see, Paul knew, probably in his heart, what the likely response was going to be. And he also knew he was in good company. There were many good people, gospel-shaped people, who had been rejected by the Jews. And yet, what does he do? He still made his defense. The question I want to close with is why? Why does he still make his defense? Knowing in all likelihood it's not going to make any difference. Well, the point is this. We don't know it didn't make a difference. And he could not know it wouldn't make a difference. Let me summarize it like this. What was seemingly ineffective with the mob was not ineffective in God's wider purposes. Let's just tease out various ways in which that would be the case. I can see three in particular. Uh, Firstly, we cannot say categorically that none of those present that day in the mob subsequently thought better of what they'd had they responded. Maybe some of them on reflection said, actually, that was pretty out of order. He was being quite reasonable. We should have given him a hearing. Maybe. Uh, Secondly, In doing what he can to reach out to them with the gospel, uh, what is Paul doing? Actually, he's discharging his responsibility to them. Uh, He is responsible for telling them, but he's not responsible for how they respond. But he is responsible for telling them the gospel. Uh, Do you remember a few weeks ago in Acts when we saw Paul using this watchman metaphor when he's talking to and describing his ministry to the Ephesian elders? It's back in chapter 19. He calls himself a watchman, or alludes to himself as a watchman. He has the responsibility of sounding the alarm. If people ignore what he says, hey, their blood is on their own heads. So that's the second reason. Thirdly, there is a wider canvas in view. Uh, Paul's defense that day was overheard by many others in addition to the mob. Firstly, more immediately, it was heard, of course, by the Roman commander and the soldiers. But it was also heard by the original recipient of this letter, the book of Acts. Uh, Both Acts and the Gospel of Luke are actually two parts of the same work. 
Uh, They were written to the same person, a person called Theophilus. And in Luke chapter 1, uh, he is addressed as follows. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Most excellent Theophilus. Uh, Most excellent is probably another way of saying it's an honorary title. It's probably the equivalent of saying uh, your excellency. So it's quite possible that Theophilus uh, held a position of some prestige. He may well have been a high-ranking Roman official. We're not told. But uh, Paul gives his reasons at the beginning of Luke's gospel for why he's writing Luke and Acts to Theophilus. Luke 1 verse 4. He says this. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. You see, uh, there were many slanderous rumours circulating about Christianity uh, in the days of Theophilus in the first century. Uh, did you know that Christians were accused of being atheists? Sounds a bit strange to our ears. What? But they were. Why? Because they had no temple. They said, we don't need a building. And so everyone else who's sort of worshipping all these other gods, who each has a temple, they don't have a temple. They can't be worshipping a god. They're atheists. It's not a good start, is it? Uh, second, uh, Christians were actually falsely accused of incest. Yeah. Why? Because they called each other brothers and sisters. Uh, They were even accused of cannibalism. How about that? Why? Because they claimed to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ in their Lord's Supper. Talk about slanderous false rumours circulating. So the Christianity of Theophilus' day, try and say that yourself, uh, was controversial. And with so many rumours and false reports circulating, it was important that Theophilus knew the truth about Christianity. And so, the Gospel of Luke and then the Book of Acts were written so that Theophilus may know for sure. And when Theophilus is reading Acts 22, what is he doing? He's listening to Paul's defence. It's as if he's there that day. And Paul's testimony, therefore, is reaching ears beyond that of those who were there that day. And what would Theophilus have concluded? What Paul said may not have made sense to that murderous crowd that day, but it makes sense to me. It may not have seemed reasonable to them, but it's reasonable to me. It's actually those other people who are being unreasonable. And so, as he read this, Theophilus' faith would have been strengthened. And his clarity of what the gospel truly was would have been sharpened. The same has remained true throughout the centuries and is still true today. When talking to people about Christianity, we can be as reasonable and gentle and loving and patient as possible, and yet there will be occasions when people will respond with rejection and vitriol. Are we tempted not to bother? Do we lean towards going, yeah, maybe I'll remain quiet. Maybe I'll not just say anything. We may not win the people over to whom we speak. We never know. But also, we never know who else is listening in. And those who are listening in may subsequently say themselves, hey, I hadn't thought of that. That's actually a good point. It's reasonable. I should give this Christianity a bit more of a hearing. And indeed, if those who are listening in are Christians themselves, 
they in turn may be encouraged to make a defense for Christianity in other situations in which they find themselves. You'll be familiar with that beautiful verse in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. It says this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ? Are you ready to speak for Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this passage of Acts uh, is challenging. Uh, we see great courage and bravery on behalf of Paul, uh, speaking to a crowd who uh, he well would have suspected, would have rejected what he was going to say, and who uh, were violent uh, towards him. And yet he moved forward, uh, trusting you, speaking the truth of the gospel, doing what he could to win them over, and to be used in your purposes. Please, we pray, help us to follow his example and to live lives which share the gospel uh, in situations which are easy, uh, but also in situations which are difficult. Help us to do this to your glory. Amen. Well, I'll close